You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hello, Stella. Hi, Sasha. How are you? I'm doing really well. Today, we are going to be covering a really important topic of collective collusion. So we're going to be starting by describing what we mean by this. And we see collective collusion happening on two levels, on the societal level, and then also between therapist and client. And then we're going to share some examples of how collective collusion is playing out on gender. And we're also going to discuss the psychological factors, psychological factors that might contribute to collective collusion, how it happens, how it unfolds, and also how to get out of collective collusion, because that's ultimately what our goal is. It's not considered a great concept in um, therapy to collude with your client. And yet, if you look back in, you know, anybody who who studied to be a therapist, if you look back in person-centered therapy, which was very much developed around Carl Rogers, and it's a brilliant therapy. It's about, you know, the core conditions of empathy, congruence, um, unconditional positive regard. But a lot of people feel that it slid into collusion sometimes if it wasn't done appropriately. And mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder, is this a hangover of that, that we are, we therapists can be too fixated on being person-centered and we forget we are therapists and we are professionals who have a job to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So so maybe we could start with the definition. Do you have a good definition of what collusion means? Well, the definition I, I thought was most appropriate was a collusion in, ther- in therapy is the process in which a therapist consciously or unconsciously participates with a client to avoid an issue that needs to be addressed. So very often, for example, just to give a kind of concrete example, I might have a client who's worried about their drinking. And if I happen to be somebody who was worried about my drinking, myself and the client could collude with each other and say, sure, it's Christmas. Everybody drinks too much. And sure, we all drink Mm -hmm. too much when it's stressful. And oh, COVID, sure, we're all drinking too much. And that would be a therapist colluding with a client unconsciously. You Mm -hmm. do it a lot. Well, I do it a lot. You certainly don't, Sasha, around weight and chocolate. And I'm sure you can have a jar of chocolate. Oh, I do it, Stella. I don't know why you think I don't. We all do it. (laughs) So it's a really understandable way to slip in. I do it with clients. I know I do it. You can slip into it because you're colluding because you're human. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about a bigger scenario here where it's collective collusion. where mm-hmm. the, So maybe clinics are much more prone to it than independent therapists. And I often say to clients who are worried about um, the therapy that their child or their, their uh, loved one is getting, I often say sometimes independent therapists can be more independent than a clinic mm-hmm. because in mm-hmm. clinics there can be very much a group ethos. And that can slip into collective collusion. But collusion occurs when a therapist somehow merges with their client's view of themselves and the world instead of helping the client explore the world. Mm. So you merge into whatever the client is thinking. You merge in when you should be stepping. You should have that gap between you and the client of this is reality. I can walk into your reality with my Rogerian Mm person-centred, I'll enter into your world, but you don't lose sight of your own world if you're a good therapist. That's right. Reality kind of sticks in no -hmm. matter what. And that's a good therapist who can kind of have that kind of ability to step back when they've colluded to step back and say, well, let's actually have a look at this. Let's explore your world. What do you think of those definitions? I think that's spot on. You know, one one thing that comes to my mind is that there is like a trajectory in therapy that we aim for. So we first have to really join the client and understanding their world from their perspective. But what I often find myself saying is like, you know, I wonder if you'll join me in taking a bird's eye view of what's going on. 
you know, um, or here's how I'm seeing this as someone on the outside. I wonder if you see it that way too. So there is this process in therapy whereby you, you start with really being there with the client in their world. And then you have to kind of pull out a little bit so that you can help them gain a new perspective. And collusion is really about collapsing the need for a new perspective. And it's just kind of co-rumination or joining the client exactly the way they see it. And I'm thinking about, you know, this is how it plays out on the clinical level between client and therapist. But I also know when it comes to gender, there seems to have become a collective collusion amongst all of society in some ways. And I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, when a young person or an adult uh, comes out as trans, there seems to be a collective amnesia about the fact that they had any biological sex that differed from their gender identity just five minutes before, or just a month before, or a year before. And there's a request to be to collude that they, they didn't exist, really. That the person who was the opposite sex didn't exist because now they're trans-identified. And there's an inherent request in the in the current Mm-hmm. attitude to trans, which is let's all, we won't, dead naming to me is a classic example. The concept mm-hmm. of dead naming is a classic example of collective collusion. We'll all collude together and pretend you never had that name. You never existed under that yeah. name and you didn't play. You didn't have friends. You didn't have anything that that person didn't exist. And we will all mm-hmm. collectively collude and pretend that didn't happen. Even in the term dead name, I mean, it is a death Mm. of some former self. And I wanted to read a quote actually from Carl Jung. He was talking in the book, uh, Modern Man in Search for a Soul. He was talking about the importance of catharsis in therapy and being able to really confess your suppressed emotions and the truth of your situation and kind of confronting this inner and outer world. And he says, for we are all in some way or another kept asunder by our secrets. And instead of seeking through confession to bridge the abysses that separate us from one another, we choose the ease, the easy by way of deceptive opinions and illusions. And to me, these deceptive opinions and illusions really seem to have captured a lot of us on an individual level and on a collective level. So that is the collective collusion I hope to discuss today with you, Stella. Yeah, there's a collective collusion among therapists, which we'll go into, and there's a collective collusion around gender, around language. So like you say, dead naming, how did that even get passed? Like, it's such an extraordinary phrase. But transphobic is an example of collective collusion, that we're allowing words to be called people and events and behaviours to be called transphobic when they're not transphobic. Transphobic Mm -hmm. is... To me, it, it well, the word phobic suggests a lot. And mm-hmm. yes, you know, it's often considered transphobic not to not to uh, to default to the cishet, to the ordinary straight white person or the straight mm-hmm. um, heterosexual person. That's transphobic these days. Like the mission creep of transphobia has just become a c- complete collective collusion that mm-hmm. very kind of high minded journalists Allow people to be called transphobic, like J.K. Rowling, who I'm sure we'll mm-hmm. discuss in our collective mm-hmm. collusion, that, that are not transphobic. Mm-hmm. Like, transphobic has a meaning. Yeah. And just because we're colluding that it has a different meaning doesn't mean it does. Like, reality mm-hmm. matters. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, what are some examples? I mean, you mentioned J.K. Rowling. Let's, let's dig into that since we're here. How do you think the J.K. Rowling situation is an example of collective collusion? I'll, I'll tell you how, because she was a very well-known liberal, a very well-known, obviously the Harry Potter uh, books are a really good example of, you know, the hero's journey and a very a brave little boy who was willing to stand up to you know, the, the forces of darkness and things like that. And that wasn't just J.K. Rowling. She's a philanthropist who set up a charity for, you know, children. You kind of couldn't get much more philanthropic than that or good. And um, when she came out with, you know, maybe her first Twitter comment, which was trying to stand up for, for Maya Forster, who'd lost her job because of what I would believe is inappropriate accusations of transphobia, um, again, my four-stater, right? Yeah, my, my four-stater, four-stater mm-hmm. yeah. Um, 
again, J.K. Rowling was accused of transphobia. And I would say, no, neither Maya Forstater or J.K. Rowling were, were transphobic. And it it's a year later and it seems to have slid in that like people often, I'd be listening to the radio and somebody would say something about J.K. Rowling being transphobic. It's like, what? Sorry. She has mm-hmm. never been transphobic. I've asked many, many people, show me a sentence that she wrote, a sentence that she uttered that was transphobic, even one out of the many, like she wrote a 3,600 word essay to defend herself. And I've never seen anybody come up with even one sentence that she has written or uttered that is transphobic. And yet there's a collusion in the world by a large number of people that she's transphobic. Mm-hmm. That would to me be a very good example of how we're collectively colluding. And we've been doing this in different forms for thousands of years. This isn't new to society to collect. No, it's not. There's there's a million different examples and we always think we're the generation that won't do it. Well, we're doing it again. We, We always will. And I think it's important to be aware of it. I mean, that's part of the Uh, the point of a therapeutic conversations is to become aware of our patterns. And I think this is an example. Um, That brings me back to what I was talking about at the beginning, which was Carl Rogers. So Carl Rogers, for anybody who's listening, if you don't mind, I just want to say a little bit about him. He's a, you know, he's a great psychologist. I really have an awful lot of respect for him. And I think he's brilliant. And he brought in this condition, these kind of three core conditions, which he believed were necessary and sufficient for change to occur. And, you know, therapeutic change to occur. And the the three core conditions were, you know, unconditional positive regard, congruence and empathy. And if the therapist could be those three things, which is uh, congruence is kind of like authenticity, have unconditional regard for the client and be empathic, that was enough for the client. It was necessary and sufficient. It was enough for a client to feel better. It seems to have definitely worked with Carl Rogers clients and maybe many people who practice person-centered therapy. It's a huge practice in Ireland and England, person-centered therapy, very much led the way from the 70s onwards. And I often thought it wasn't quite as big in America as it was over here, but it certainly is very big and has been. And when you look at empathy, you have to be very, very careful, because if you are too empathic, you can you can enmesh with the client. And this is where you can start to collude with the client. And while Carl Rogers brings such great value to therapy, you you have to be careful with his core conditions because if you're not careful, you won't challenge the client, for example. Uh, and sometimes people have um, denigrated Carl Rogers' work and said it's the nod- nodding dog of therapy <laughs> where you just nod along to whatever the client says, you go into their world and it's kind of suspension of disbelief. You know, when you're reading a novel and you just suspend disbelief and you go into the client's world. And I know I have a lot of empathy, so I find it very easy to go into the client's world. And therefore, it's something I have to be very aware of. I need boundaries. Because if you don't have proper boundaries, I'll just enmesh. So the classic kind of person-centered therapist, they will be very reluctant to give, to challenge their client. They'll be also often reluctant to give honest feedback, even though he did bring in congruence and he said you have to be authentic. It's very hard to balance that with Mm -hmm. unconditional positive regard, because can you be authentic and also have unconditional positive regard at the same time? There's a challenge Mm -hmm. for anybody. Mm -hmm. But people often say there's a softening of accountability when when you are too empathic with the client and you say, oh, I know how it is. I get it. And basically you you enmesh with the client you don't have enough boundaries. You don't do that brilliant line that you said about the bird's eye view and you enter into their world. So if they say, I'm a boy and there are girls sitting in front of you, you fall into it and you say, mm-hmm. yeah, you're a boy. Mm-hmm. And any reference to you being a girl is is going to break, rupture the relationship, so I won't bother. Mm-hmm. And that, that, if that worked, I'd be all for it, even though it would make me feel very uneasy because it's dishonest. But it doesn't work because what it does is leads the client to be stuck. It leads the client to not progress beyond their own. They become a prisoner to their own narrative. They've won, mm-hmm. they've won story of themselves and that's the story they get stuck on because that's the story they've brought to the therapy and the therapist colludes with them. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the client who's very obese who says, I'm not really that big and I'm very fit. And I don't need to do anything about it. And the therapist could fall in with that and say, yeah, you're a, you're fine. You're not obese. You're gorgeous. You're lovely the way you are. We don't need to do anything about it. Now, 
Maybe they don't. Maybe they do. But it would be more helpful for the therapist to take the bird's eye view and say, will we have a look at this in all the different, let's not patronize you. Mm. Pretend you can only, you can only do one, one side of the story. So I suppose that's where I would be. I think it doesn't help the client discover their true story and it colludes with the first story. And the first story might be a symbolic story. It might be the first. It might be even very often clients might test you with their first story. They might be just saying that as a tester to see where they're at. They're mm-hmm. trying it out for size, really. Mm-hmm. And they're very happy to be um, challenged further. Like a lot of people might come into me and they'd be going on about their, their partner or something. But later on, they might be talking about their real issue, which is their depression or something. Like mm-hmm. that. Well, to be fair, you know, I think what Carl Rogers hypothesized is that if you can uphold those three tenets of therapy, what will happen is that the client will be able to access deeper and deeper self-reflections. And the idea is that if somebody feels fully accepted, they can kind of hear themselves talk and they might catch their own discrepancies or, um, you know, the conflicting views that they hold and work it out themselves. So, I mean, I, I get that sometimes there is a place for that. And if somebody has felt very repressed from expressing their, their thoughts or feelings in their social environment, that space and therapy could be really transformative with just those three tenets of therapy. But I agree when we're talking about something like gender, this collusion between client and therapist is different insofar as the identity is often uh, trying to serve a deeper need. And having your client just simply ruminate on gender identity doesn't necessarily build its own pathway out of that kind of stuck space. And sometimes pursuing the path of gender identity might be the right solution, but we do need to be able to offer the client a deeper reflection about what else might be going on here. And that's the problem with person-centered therapy. There isn't a lot of space for the what else, you know, what else is this about? Because it's client-led. So if the client wants to talk about gender every single week for the next three years, the client will talk about gender every, and you, I remember you saying that great line, you know, people are more than just a walking identity. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to us. And mm-hmm. I would like as, as a therapist to always make sure that the client explores all the, the different reasons why they might have any, any issue that they mm-hmm. can, that, that I don't believe in patronizing the clients. Funny enough, I would have been very much taught when I was doing my degree for counseling psychotherapy, it was very person centered. And then I did the opposite for my master's. I did cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an integrator because cognitive behavioral therapy would be an enemy of person centered. And I want to say that to remind people that counseling and psychotherapy have argued with each other forever. And so it's nothing new for therapists to be saying, I'm not mad about this approach and there is this approach, but mm-hmm. there's a collective collusion not to over beat this word to death, but there is a collective <laughs> collusion that there's only one way to treat trans um, identified people when never before in history have psychologists agreed that there's only one way to treat anybody. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time that suddenly there's only one way to do it. And that just doesn't, it doesn't really, um, doesn't make sense. But I do want to say why therapists, some therapists in particular would be more likely to collude with others. I would be one of them because I have a lot of empathy and that makes me more prone to collusion and something I need to be aware of. A desire to protect the client is a big one. So if you think gender dysphoria is some sort of unusual unicorn condition that nobody can understand, you can become very protective of your client, have this kind of, you can confuse your empathy with sympathy and you can fall into thinking that this is a special and it's called, you know, the exceptionalism of gender dysphoria as if Mm -hmm. it's kind of this weird condition that nobody's ever had when actually there's been documented cases of it in different forms and different terms for many, for many kind of uh, eras. But more than that, when the the therapist wishes to, to rescue the client, 
the the client is kind of whisked away from processing their feelings and instead encouraged to become intellectual about the subject. So they might talk about, oh, how difficult it is to be trans as opposed to what's going on for you right now. Mm -hmm. That's going into the politics because you're colluding rather than Mm -hmm. saying there's an individual in front of me who's having difficulty with their life. Well, there's another issue here with the collusion on on gender identity, because I think if the client is under some false pretense that their body doesn't matter or that their biological sex doesn't really have any bearing on their life and you become overly identified with the client and you feel bad and so you want to protect them from the, the harshness of reality then you're actually doing a huge disservice to the client because at some point this person is going to bump up against that barrier of reality, whether it's immediately when they start, let's say, a medical transition and it's much more challenging than they thought, for example, or after four or five years of medical transition when some health implications really start to impact them. There's always um, this kind of glass ceiling of reality that is sometimes in conflict with the illusion that clients can bring into therapy. You know, I think about sometimes if, if a person is fantasizing about, you know, leaving their wife or husband to have some steamy love affair and run off to an island somewhere. I mean, <laughs> me, um, you know, there's the fantasy of how great that would be in your mind. But then there's the reality of how does this actually play out on planet Earth? And yeah. it's not actually serving your client to join them in the fantasy without holding it in a symbolic way. I mean, there's a way you might say to a client, wow, tell me about this fantasy of becoming a man. What does that mean to you? What do you imagine life might be like? But then you have to bring it back down because that's not exactly what is going to happen. There's a a kind of gritty reality of what transition means or doesn't mean. And that's why there's a difference between a friendship and a therapist client role, because of friend might just nod along, you, you know, because it's not their role to, to kind of, but a therapist is actually, you know, there is a, there is, there's a science, as, well, I say that in a loose word, but there's a certainly strong knowledge base of what we are as therapists and what our job is to do. And one of our jobs is not to collude with clients. And certainly I would say the brick wall of reality rather than the glass wall, like yeah. a brick wall. Yeah. Yes. And I think children, of course, are more prone to magical thinking than uh, adults. And so we have to be very careful that their magical thinking doesn't allow them to make irreversible decisions. And it, it feels like there was a collective collusion around puberty blockers where the, you can see like really engaged therapists on film on TV saying the child knows best who they are and the child is eight and ten. And it's like, well, no, no, they don't. And that's why it's the role of the adult to guide the child and the concerned adults guide child. And no, no collective collusion can make that any different. That's, mm-hmm. that's a fact. And it's a well-established fact that adults guide children so that children don't do things that they didn't realize were dangerous, but that became dangerous. But the over-identifying with the client, that's an issue, I think, specifically around an awful lot of people who are gay presume that being gay is the same as being trans and an awful lot of gay therapists presume that they're saving their young self when they meet a trans-identified child. They kind of mix it up. Mm-hmm. But I know I've had a few clients who are detransitioners and, I, I, you know, I've heard them in outrage talk about their trans therapist. And this mm-hmm. seems to be a thing, in, especially in America, that you go to a gender clinic and your therapist is trans. And I know um, I've heard people speak eloquently about that. And they say, I couldn't really explore the issues of being trans with my trans therapist because it would offend them. Mm-hmm. Because I had, you know, I had dark thoughts to process that I couldn't bring to therapy because I was afraid of um, hurting my trans therapist. There's a great tradition in alcoholism and in many other issues where if you've been an alcoholic, you can train to be an alcoholic counsellor and it's so effective. And I've no doubt that's very effective around trans for huge amount of issues around society and how to live when they're already transitioned. But before they've transitioned, I'm not convinced meeting a trans 
therapist makes sense. Unless well, there's a very definite remit in the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Well, this is so easy to become enmeshed with your client when your life history is very, very similar to their life history. And that is tricky territory. And we should be very, very cautious about that. I mean, in the same way that there's all this um, awareness and training programs about not being biased against somebody because they're different from you. The other side of that coin is we have to be very careful if we see too much of ourselves in a client because uh-huh. we can get mixed up and not be able to see their way out. We might encourage them to follow a path we took. So this you is get, very you, important. You get blind spots. We are all human. You get blind spots. If you share a wound similar to your client, immediately book an extra uh, session with your supervisor yeah. <laughs> yeah. because you are in tricky territory and you need to be very careful mm-hmm. and then I as I say, we collude, sorry to jump in we collude with the client's illness not their wellness so if yeah. they have a similar wound that's where we'll go to and we'll we'll collude that direction mm-hmm. rather than colluding with their wellness which would be a lot more productive but sorry I jumped in on no you. that's okay I just I want to make sure we touch on a couple of these societal collusions because we've discussed the therapy relationship with a client but you talked about um, having uh, doctors and physicians speak with confidence that an eight-year-old knows who they are and this is reminding me of a situation that's happening right now on December 30th of 2020 which was just a few weeks ago um, the insurance commissioner in California made this proposal to reclassify mastectomies for youth which is breast removal, from a cosmetic procedure to something called a reconstructive surgery. And what they claim is that if a child identifies as transgender, so let's say a female identifies as a boy, they can classify the removal of her breasts as a reconstructive surgery to repair abnormal structures of her body caused by a congenital defect. Removing breasts from a little girl is now classified, or they're trying to get it classified as repairing a congenital defect. So to me, this is just the most egregious example of how we can use language to collude with an illusion that is completely, completely unbased in reality. Because, you know, when you're 11 or 12, you don't quite always know the science behind things. And, you know, I've heard of clients being surprised to realize, no, every cell in your body is XX, which makes you female. You, you know what I mean? And this is not, you can, you can change your outer body all you wish, but you still have your inner body to contend with. So if a little girl who's 11 is told by this proposed bill that you are actually, you believe you're a boy and therefore you are a boy, and therefore, you've got a congenital birth defect to remove your, your growing breasts. That child doesn't know any better. It's the adult's job to tell the child that you actually you're born healthy and you're identifying as a boy and you may one day transition to male, but you still won't be able to change every cell in your body. You still can't open up everything. What you can do is change a lot of the outside of yourself. And so you will look more like a boy and that might make you feel better, but it mightn't. And that is all you can do. And we can play around with language so that we collude with kids so that they don't get upset in the moment. And people often say this, be kind. I'm very uncomfortable around this, be kind hashtag at this stage, because I always think, do you want to be kind in the moment or do you want to be kind in the long term? because that's the big difference here. You might be being kind to the 11-year-old by saying, yeah, yeah, you're a boy, and yeah, this is a congenital birth defect, and we can get rid of your breasts. But that's being kind in the moment. It's like giving somebody, you know, a short-term fix. Being kind in the long term is making sure that they, over the long term, they realize who they are, how they were born, and from that, they can do with it what they wish. But there's no point in trying to tell them that they are different to what they are, because it makes them feel better. And this particular proposal was an attempt to make insurance companies cover mastectomy with no age limit. That was kind of the point of it. And that's an interesting, it's an interesting way to approach that issue because I also know we've talked about how the practical barriers to transition sometimes are the very thing that will help a person 
kind of face the reality of their biological sex and perhaps overcome their gender dysphoria. But by removing that barrier and saying anybody who wants these procedures at any age can have them covered under insurance, that's another way of kind of joining the person in their fantasy and facilitating this this idea. It's, and it's also making them a prisoner of their fantasy because it's not exploring that they have other options. Mm-hmm. It's giving them the one option because they, they, as a child, have brought up one option. The adults have nodded along and now there is only one option in that child's head. And when you look at um, the actual, if you stand back and just look at what is the impact of colluding with a client, it's stuckness. The client gets stuck. And this is what I see with an awful lot of uh, children who are kind of um, identified as trans and it feels like they're stuck. They're stuck with one option. Mm-hmm. And our job is to give lots. There's lo- There's so much out there to kind of feel and, better with. And when this happens on a societal level, not only do the individuals get stuck, but entire institutions get stuck. Right. So I just want to list a couple of examples of how this is happening on a broader level before we switch over. I mean, there are school curriculum that are now teaching children that gender identity is more real than biological sex. And there was a case in Canada where a a mother um, brought to everyone's attention that her daughter was taught in school that there's no such thing as boys and girls and her daughter was six, six years old. So, I mean, there are schools colluding with this idea. We also are aware that there are cases where male-bodied people who have a criminal record of aggressive and persistent violence against women are put in jails with women and assaulting women in women's jails. And that's another example of how everything we have done to safeguard women has been thrown out the window. And, you know, when it comes to self-declared gender recognition in legal documentation, this is a, a really important example of how attempting to kind of uphold this fantasy has material impacts on everybody. And and again, it's this collusion with this fantasy that has very serious implications because of the loopholes that it creates, which we know that loopholes will be taken advantage of. This is just unfortunately a fact of human life. And it's odd to me that with this one particular issue, Um, proponents of self-identification, for example, say, well, that will never happen. Nobody would ever take advantage of that loophole. But we know that's not true. Humans have always taken advantage of loopholes. And that's not an admonition against transgender people. It's just human nature to take advantage of loopholes by some small minority of the population. And that's why we have to have laws and policies and school guidance that is written carefully to minimize the chance of that happening. Yeah. And, you know, the, the in England and Ireland, it's quite interesting because there was tra- when I was making the film Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. It was 2018. And um, there was an awful lot of talk that year in England because I was over in England a lot of the time. I mean, Ar- I'm based in Ireland. And uh, there was an awful lot of talk about how there was trans women in the prison, in the prisons, in the British prison system. And um, I was told at the time it's transphobic to refer to that. And I said, okay, because I was learning my trade at the time. I said, okay, it's transphobic to refer to the fact that there was trans women in British prisons. Then the trans, one of the trans women in the British prisons, and more than one, a few, um, uh, there was just, there was event incidents. So there was sexual assaults from trans women to female inmates in prisons in Britain. And, you know, I want to point out that female prisoners are the most vulnerable in society. They really are. They're 95%, and I have my numbers right, 95% are in for petty crime. Female prisons are very, very vulnerable. There was assault in the British prison, so the British prison um, decided to reform. Now, over in Ireland, where we're very similar to England, we have the same laws, we are enacting the very same thing. And I was then told it was transphobic to refer to the fact that there was sexual assaults from trans women in in British prisons when I mentioned Irish prisons. And so now there's currently sex offenders who are trans women in the Irish prisons and there's violent offenders uh, who who are uh, trans women in the Irish prisons. 
And yet it's transphobic to refer to that. And it's transphobic <laughs> to refer to the fact that there were sexual assaults and now they've reformed the prison service in Britain as a direct result of the flawed system in 2018. And that's collective collusion. It's what? Yeah. what? Like, really? And England and Ireland were not very different. We're very similar society. It happened two years ago. They're reforming it. Inevitably, it's going to happen here and we'll reform it. Do we really have to hurt the most vulnerable in society before it happens? It would make your head spin. You know, but pluralistically, ignorance is what this is all about. Mm. And for anybody who doesn't know, I'll just give out the kind of the, the definition of pluralistic ignorance. It's the discrepancy between public actions and private sentiments. So often um, people will think individuals act out of a desire to be good group members and they interpret other people's behaviour as reflecting their beliefs and opinions. So everybody else thinks everybody else knows what they're talking about and they fall in with the good group. They just think this is what the good group do. And there's been so many examples, you know, the Stasi, you know, East Germany, behind the Berlin Wall were a very good example, where one in six of them, one in six in East Germany by the end of the wall, by the end of the Berlin Wall um, in the 1980s, were um, informers of some sort. Mm -hmm. One in six. And yet when the wall came down in 1989, pretty much everybody, there was this famous reporter who went over from America to find people who believed in the East German regime. Nobody did. They all thought it was rubbish. Absolute rubbish. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yet pluralistic ignorance, which is you think everybody else has an opinion. So you're falling in with the opinion that you think they're thinking, mm-hmm. but you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Am I making sense here? Yeah, or am I it, words here? It, it's incredible because pluralistic ignorance means that many, many, many people privately hold the same opinion. Yeah. But in the public sphere, only the minority opinion is being expressed. Yeah. So everyone thinks, well, I must be the only person that doesn't agree with this. And what is the emperor's new clothes? The famous exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, the emperor's new clothes is the actual story of pluralistic ignorance, where they weaved the clothes and the emperor was told by those kind of, what are they called? The crooks, that mm. if, you're, if you're stupid, you will not be able to see the fabric. <laughs> and so he nods along saying it's beautiful fabric and his aides <laughs> nod along saying it's beautiful fabric. And then they're out in the parade. And everybody says, doesn't the king look beautiful or the emperor look beautiful? Because they were all pluralistic ignorance. They were all afraid that they were the only people who were missing the point. And then it took a child to say the emperor's wearing no clothes. Mm -hmm. And it's the very same. And we do it all the time in society. Let's let's dig into a little more details on how this happens. So the social majorities the these these concepts that we think everyone holds they're created by a few true hardcore believers social psychology tells us that it only takes a few really loud really seemingly confident voices to create this illusion of a social majority yeah there's a fam- there's a famous test called the ash conformity test you can look these up they're really interesting social experiments i showed them to my kids and it was actually very good to show them to the kids because i wrote a book called bullyproof kids and it was a lot about bystanding and upstanding mm-hmm. and learning to be an upstander so i was trying to teach my kids around that and then i found all these social experiments on youtube but it was really interesting but anyway a very very well known psychology um, experiment is called the Ash Conformity Test, where one person, one student was placed in a room of, let's say, 10 actors. And the teacher holds up a card with three vertical lines and says, which is the longest line? It's not a difficult test. It's quite <laughs> obvious which is the longest line. But the 10 actors all say that another line is the, the longest line. And 84% of the time, the guinea pig, the person who doesn't know what's going on, falls in with the other 10 and says a line is shorter than it is. <laughs> it would make your head spin that that is, and that has consistently been replicated. These are adults. These are not children. Mm-hmm. And they nod along and they say it's all about a need to be accepted. It's falling in with the group and it's often a sense of weak self-esteem, they believe. But more than anything, it's group thinking. And there's a yeah. terrible story in Ireland about group think. Um, you know, in Ireland, there was a huge wave of um 
Irish Catholic priests that were accused of sexual abuse. And they did. There was an awful lot of sexual abuse in, in the past in Ireland, huge amount by Irish Catholic priests. But then in 2011, the most famous and most well-respected TV programme called Primetime in Ireland, they accused uh, a man, an Irish Catholic priest, of being a sexual abuser and they were wrong. And they ruined his life. And then they came out and said it was that we were victim of groupthink, that it was group. Mm-hmm. We all thought each other knew better. Mm-hmm. Thought it. It's a very dangerous thing. And I think it's happening in cl- clinics. And I think it's very much happened in the Tavistock. We know at least 35, if not 45 clinicians have left the Tavistock. We know that the governor has come out. We know that there's been a huge amount of inquiry. We know that the Kira Bell case has happened. We know that the, the independent courts of the land decided that puberty blockers was not appropriate. And yet they're still fighting. They're still holding the line. And all I can think is that the people who are still working in the Tavistock, despite the massive evidence, the massive evidence that the Berlin Wall has come down, Mm-hmm. And you're in. You're at. You're at the end here. They are collectively colluding with themselves that we're doing the right thing, and they probably mm-hmm. share similar wounds with their clients, and they've over-identified with the clients, and they think they're being a good group member. They think they're on mm-hmm. the right side of history, and I think they need to take a step back, like you say. Take my hand and let's take a bird's eye view of this. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, because you're describing what happens when it seems like we're turning a corner and maybe the truth, the, the, the true majority opinion is starting to bubble up to the surface. But the, one of the reasons why pluralistic ignorance can be so powerful and have such an impact on society is that there's an issue called false enforcement. And false enforcement is more likely to happen when there's a lot of social anxiety. And what that means is that when you when you see that there are consequences for saying the truth, you are more likely to actually punish others that hold the same opinion as you. This, to me, is the root of what cancel culture is. You have people willing to be so egregious and so punitive towards others in this very ostentatious kind of showy, I mean, virtue signaling way. And that really creates even more anxiety in the social sphere. So it, it just becomes this kind of like uh, cycle that eats itself, that makes it very, very hard to get out. But you're talking, Stella, about in Tavistock, when I think 35 clinicians resigned, they wrote publicly about what they think is happening at the clinic. They, they said, you know, we're worried that we're medicalizing gay children, that we're medicalizing autistic children. And so this makes me this makes me think we're talking now about what is the resolution to pluralistic ignorance? What's the resolution to uh, collective collusion? And um yeah, that's a biggie. It is um, a Because I know when I, I wrote my book um, around bullying, which is so much collective collusion going on with bullying. And, you know, you just they think they're on the right side and they'll always defend why they've bullied. They've been with the group and things like that. And I'm not saying the tough stuck are bullying, but I, I do think it's very similar. Group think happens. Mm-hmm. And I, I really found it difficult to come to conclusions. What I did realize is there's always upstanders. And there's a small number of them, but there are always upstanders in society. And they are the ones who are willing to say the truth. And, you know, George Orwell did it so well. You know, the freedom to say two plus two is four. And, you know, you keep on saying it. Interestingly, they have said that there's a kind of a foundation is some people have different thresholds. And some people act immediately when they feel the need to. When they see something is going wrong, they they put their hand up and say, sorry, something is going wrong. Some people will only stand up when they see one other person have done it. Some people will only stand up when they see two other people. And I see that in my own family. I could see like, you know, my boy would step up when a few people have stepped up. Well, my girl would be the first to kind of put her hand mm-hmm. up. And that's agreeableness. When you look at personality traits, I um, I remember I when I was studying my, my, my degree, we had to do a personality test and I got low on agreeableness. And not knowing I was actually hilariously making a show of myself I put my hand up to say I don't think I'm (laughs) (laughs) and the guy couldn't help but laugh and I was like I don't know what you're laughing at I'm very agreeable (laughs) I said disagreeably that's amazing (laughs) it reminds me of uh, the the assertiveness class how they sent back all their food you mentioned in another episode (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, so I have that trait and it's I kind of stand up and I know I do. I stand up because when something is happening before my eyes, something pounds in me and I stand mm-hmm. up. And you must too because you and I would not be sitting here doing this podcast right. except that we are people who stand up in the face of collusion. It, it's funny you said something pounds in me because I, my whole life, if I'm in a classroom or if I'm in a group setting and I hear something I disagree with, my heart will start pounding and it won't stop until I say something. And, you know, lest I make myself sound like some kind of hero, I was a I was a terrible child at times, too. I mean, I, I have distinct memories of being in middle school and feeling very odd and we I remember me and my friends were very mean to one of our peers and like I still that still bothers me so we're all susceptible to colluding oh, me too. You know? me so too. it's not it's not a perfect and why do you think you, you stand up now because I remember that too I cringe at some of my memories they were just all yeah. I think it was yeah. one of the reasons why I wrote that book just just bad memories of colluding yeah and bad behavior, you know? Well, I mean, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, on one level, I remember my own development as a young teenager around things like gender and sexuality. And I'll I'll get into that some other time, but it was very confusing. And I, I know that I, if I were a teenager today, I'm more than certain that I would have questioned my gender 100%. But there's one really pivotal experience that I had as a teen that that I think led me down a path of, you know, committing to truth telling whenever I could. So I was about 15 or 16 years old and I was um, driving into the mall parking lot with some of my friends uh, and we saw this man in the parking lot running like really fast in kind of in front of us. And then we saw him get shot in the back. Oh, my God. And this man just, I mean, right in front of our eyes, just collapsed in a parking lot and started to bleed out. And me and my friends were absolutely paralyzed with with fear, with confusion, with, I mean, it was almost like I thought we walked in on some sort of a television set because I've never in my life seen anything so horrifying And was it a race incident or what was it? No. Well, we weren't really sure what happened, but we knew that based on where we were standing or or where we were in our car, we knew that he was shot in the back by somebody who must have been on a stairwell. There was like a stairwell kind of behind him. And what ended up happening is the next day, I scoured the newspapers to try and see this incident. I mean, I was like reading the papers every day looking for this incident. And when I finally found the story, you know, uh, Scottsdale Fashion Square Mall, man is shot while attacking police. (gasps) He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. And I, I, I was, I think this was like one of those moments in your childhood where your innocence is just stripped from you because I thought, well, you know, it's going to be truthful. Like I want to know the truth or I want justice for this man. And it was not, it was a blatant lie. And me and my friends all saw it. And so when I saw that report in the paper, I said to my parents, I have to call the journalists. I want to submit a witness witness testimony or a statement. And, you know, my parents are lovely people. They're ethical people. But I think they were nervous about a young girl getting mixed up in a cover-up. So they said, you know what, Sasha? It's better to just keep your head down and stay out of it. I could imagine. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Their response made me a little bit scared because I thought, what is this, some giant conspiracy to cover up murders? Like, I really, I got really confused, but that was such a powerful experience for me. And to be honest, I was so frustrated by my inability to say something that something in me just said, you know what? I'm, I'm always going to commit to telling the truth. If I see something wrong happening, I'm going to tell the truth about it. Oh, so you changed from that? It was, I don't know if I changed because I wanted to tell the truth in that moment, 
But as a teenager, you know, you're still under your parents' yeah. guise. You don't have full control. And so I think as I've, of course, become independent and have been able to make decisions for myself, when I see something wrong happening, I have just committed to being honest about it as much as I can be. And wow. I think that's part of the reason why I've done this kind of crazy thing of of deciding to devote my entire private practice to gender dysphoric kids. And I've explicitly said, I don't use the affirmative care model insofar as I literally say, yes, you're a boy if you say you're a boy. What I say is, I'm going to affirm and validate that you are having this experience, that it means something important, but we're going to look together at yourself as a whole person. And that shouldn't be radical, but for some reason today, due to this kind of collective collusion with the concept of gender identity, basic regular old therapy is considered, you know, quite novel. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. That just reminds me, just while you, while you say that, is it reminds me of the very famous experiment way back in the day, the Stanley Milligan uh, experiment in 1961. And it was about how people, and I've no doubt therapists in the clinics like the Tavistock will say, I was following orders. Just mm -hmm. like you as a little kid, you know, you were following orders. And we know that feeling of authority knows better. I'm just going to, and I've heard too many accounts from too many clinicians from clinics like the Tavistock to know that they're following orders. That's what they think they do. They think other people know better. But just so people know, in 1961, after a Nazi officer who's a very well-known Nazi, Adolf Eichmann, he gave the excuse that he was just following orders in his court. And Stanley Milgram, the psychologist, said, I want to explore that. He worked in Stanford. And he, um, or is it Stanford or Yale? He worked in Yale. And so he did this experiment where people were told, the, the people in this experiment were told to administer electric shocks to actors and they didn't know they were actors. And on the actual electric shock, there was actual markings that said slight shock and said danger, severe shock. They were actually on the, 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 the things that they were administering. And they were, every time that they tried to stop giving the electric shocks, every time they answered a question wrong, the person who was the subject of the experiment had to keep on administering electric shocks to the person who answered incorrectly. And they kept on going. They kept on following the orders. And when they tried to back out of it, and they did try to back out of it, they were given specific things like the experiment requires that you continue. It is mm -hmm. essential that you continue. And they kept on going. Psychologists previous to the experiment um, predicted that 3% would go all the way to the maximum voltage. And the actual reality, 65% went to the maximum voltage where they would have killed the actors had they been real electric shocks. And mm -hmm. these these actors were falling around the floor. They were actually screaming. I mean, it was yes. really awful to listen to. And these people who were following the orders, 65% of them followed orders to the point that they would have killed somebody. And they didn't want to. Their hearts were palpitation. They were nervous. They were sweating. They were clammy. They did not want to do it, but they kept going because they thought other people know better than me. Mm-hmm. Just what reminded me of you, and it makes me think that's what's happening in clinics at the moment. Other people know better. There's something about a unicorn to do with gender dysphoria that I don't understand. There's something going on I don't understand. Or I've over-identified and I think I understand it all. Mm -hmm. It's either arrogance on one side from the people leading it to absolute collective collusion and pluralistic ignorance to the other side who are thinking, everybody mm -hmm. seems to know better than me. I better just do what I'm told. Mm -hmm. And it's an application of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And it's really a betrayal of our instincts, too, because yeah. I know from hearing from ex-GIDS clinicians that many of them said, you know, there was a voice inside of me that didn't feel right about what was happening. But then again, you just defer to the authority they must know. And so, you know, this this really highlights the this is so crucial. I mean, if there are any therapists listening to this. It's so important for us to really take a bird's eye view of our situation, of our client's situation, and then check in with your gut. Yeah. Because if something is going wrong, most likely there's a little part of you, even if it's just a molecule, saying, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. And to get ourselves out of this situation, it requires 
It requires many things. I mean, on one hand, I always hear people saying, you know, not everyone is in a financial position to where they can risk losing their job. And I get that. I get that. But you know what? There has been so much support for people like you and people like me because truth is on our side. Mm. It's so obviously true that we should be very cautious about medicalizing children. And so it requires that clinicians are willing to bear the brunt of some criticism, but they're also going to be poured over with support and encouragement and validation for doing what their gut tells them is the right thing to do. I'm so glad you brought that up because I don't think it's said enough. Like, you know, so many people told me I was so brave when the film came out because, you know, I was going against the grain and it was a very scary time. But the people I met afterwards, it was so heartening to realize that, you you know, you were meeting people who were really willing to go the extra you know, for nothing other than doing the right thing. It's interesting, one of the kind of after effects of that Stanley Milgram experiment is one of the subjects who had administered the full voltage. He became a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War and he wrote mm-hmm. cause. He he knew the effects of blind obedience and it's it's a very it's a very perilous um, it's a very perilous condition to fall in with what everybody is doing is scary. And if everybody is doing it and you're not quite sure why they are, well, that's collective collusion. You're in there and you need to kind of start thinking as a psychologist, a psychotherapist, we expect more. You know, there was, you know, there was this account of this detransitioner who was 14 and, you know, she was almost blaming herself saying, you know, I said I was a boy and I, you know, I really was very rigid about it. And I'm like, I don't care what you said. Our job as psychs, our job as therapists is to say, yeah, you can say whatever you like in your in my office. My job is still to be the professional. You know, it, it doesn't matter what they say. I'm, I, I, I still have to keep my training, mm-hmm. you, you know, and not be led by the nose by, by children who are very distressed and very young. It's so, it's so important. You know, they often say these experiments, they often say you don't know what you would do in that situation. Thankfully, I think you and I do know that for some reason, because of our life's history, we would stand up. I think it suggests because of gender we have stood up. But mm-hmm. I'd like to help more people to stand up. And I think it's about that threshold I was talking about. Some people join when the more people join in. It was amazing with the Berlin Wall. The wall fell and the guards didn't shoot. And then suddenly everybody was on the other side of the it was, it was unbelievable how people join side, change sides when mm-hmm. there's not numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think the numbers are starting to really kind of be 50-50 at this stage. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't feel like that in America, but it does feel like that here. Well, we, we often get contacted, I know I do, by therapists who have perhaps been following my work or your work or s- some other clinicians And they are really um, secretive about their suspicions on, you know, gender affirmative care. And then they will reach out. And once they start getting connected with clinicians, there's just this huge sense of relief. And there's a sense of like, oh, finally, you know, it's kind of like, you know, um, people who are part of a very high control group or an abusive relationship where they go somewhere where their, their actual feelings are validated. And there's this like, Oh, finally I can say what I've been thinking for so long. And, and uh, I would ur- urge therapists to get in contact, explore deeper. You, you know what I mean? Because you'd be amazed how much relief you will feel for hmm. this. There is a lot of talk. And I think it's a real example of collective collusion of conversion therapy. And it's like, it's been misunderstood mm-hmm. as a concept and we are all, not we are, but a lot of people are colluding that X is conversion therapy. When I would say, no, that's not conversion therapy. That's good therapy, effective mm-hmm. therapy. It's gentle, compassionate, going along the road with the client without losing touch with reality. That's mm-hmm. good therapy. That's not, that's not conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, it comes from an old, awful therapy where gay people were subjected to terrible things like electric shocks in a bid to make them and not gay. And the or idea- even emotional manipulation, you know, trying to terrify somebody about hell. And I mean, that's horrible. I mean, that is so against the basic tenets of psychology. But I think you're talking about the fact that we now have really twisted around what conversion therapy means. Go ahead. 
Yeah, and we're colluding. A lot of people are colluding with it, saying it's conversion therapy when it's not. There's an issue that a lot of gay people are transitioning. And so you could argue that there was conversion therapy going the opposite way, where the, the gay people are being converted into trans, which, you know, I know it would make people's heads spin, but it, it does happen. And they, it's because often because of internalized homophobia. And but when people talk about conversion therapy and they nod along when actually it's good, genuine, compassionate therapy, that is a really insidious mission creep yeah. that we need to stand up and be very strong in ourselves and say, you know, good therapy is good therapy. And if it's compassionate and if it's um, if it has positive regard and if there is empathy and there is reality, those ingredients make for good therapy and it is not conversion therapy. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 